Hey, and welcome to the Christina Talks podcast. I love the fact that so many of you keep coming back and listening. It's, you know, this is a passion project for me anyway, but just knowing that we've got these returning listeners every episode just makes it all the more worthwhile. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you do find value in this, if you are enjoying it, if you if you find that you keep tuning in for the next episode, then I would absolutely love if you wouldn't mind leaving me a little review, um, maybe leaving me a you know a few stars wherever it is you listen to your podcast, whether it is on Apple or um, Spotify or, or wherever else your your podcast listening platform of choice. Um, I'd really appreciate it if you could do that. Hello, Jen Roblin. Welcome to the Christina Talks podcast. Hello. How are you, lovely? I'm good. I am good. I'm good. I'm so excited to be doing this. I mean, let's be honest, we talk pretty much every day anyway. Um, So it's weird actually having a conversation that's going to be not formal, but, you know, other people might get an insight into our world listening to it this. It will be different to our usual conversations. <laughs> it's definitely much earlier in the day, that's for sure. It's normally like late at night. We're we're on WhatsApp and and hanging out and um, sharing our days and our challenges and our wins and all that kind of stuff. So um, so yeah, but okay. Obviously, I know what you do. We're great friends. We're we're, we're partners in business as well. But for those people that are listening that don't know who you are, what you're about, what you stand for, give them the intro. Right. Well, like you say, Jen Roblin, I am an anxiety coach. So I specifically work with teenagers and young adults. And I, I do work with, with all people, but that's the demographic I like to work with best. And that started up in 2016 after I'd been working for 30 years in the corporate world. So it was a typical story. I fell into a job, stayed there for 30 years. Um, I, I did enjoy it. I liked it. I got to travel around the world and live in lots of different countries, and it was all fun. And what I really loved about that corporate world was that I had big teams of people. And I was unaware at the time, but to get the teams to perform at their best, I was coaching them. Now, I'd never heard of the concept of coaching. I had no idea what it was. And and people kept asking me, are you doing NLP? I had no idea what that was either. So when I came to leave London, I decided that I was going to take a year off and work out what I wanted to do next. My daughter, Madeleine, was just going up to senior school. And I wasn't spending as much time with her as I wanted to. The hours were long. I was often working at weekends because I was the head of the um, program of change. So managing all their projects. So quite often we had to work at the weekends because it had to be when nobody else was working in the office. So Madeleine used to come to London with me and have her own desk at Canary Wharf. And I just realized it wasn't the life I wanted for her. I wanted to give her um, more time downtime with us, going away weekends, doing very different things. So I quit. And everyone thought I was mad. Everyone thought it was crazy to quit a good job with nothing else to go to. But I did take time out and I took a year off. And 
you know, I started thinking about the people that have said about NLP and, and what was NLP. So I started to look into it. And then I realized that there is such a job as coaching. So it became very, very obvious that that was the pattern, the path I was going to go down. And then it was a case of what do I coach? Um, I'd been in banking for 30 years. You know, I wanted to coach something completely different. And I started to realize that with all the teams that I'd worked with, the underlying factor that impacted everyone was anxiety. It was imposter syndrome. It was fear of failure. It was fear of deadlines. It was fear of being judged. It was all about fears. And that's what was holding us all back. And only then did I make the connection that had been what had held me back for so many years. And it hadn't really occurred to me. But I'd had anxiety as a child. And the bigger my teams got, and the more people I worked with, the more I was able to hide behind them. And it wasn't something that I was consciously aware that I was doing, but I always felt that I'd be found out um, that I wasn't good enough at what I was doing. So I used to promote my teams and, and hide behind them. So it actually worked very, very well. We had some very successful teams. It didn't matter which country I was working in. So it was, you know, across all cultures. And we just had the most loyal staff. So I moved country, my staff would often come with me. So it did work very, very well. So I knew that that's what I wanted to focus on, working with people that were struggling with anxiety because that's my own background. That's what I've got a lot of experience in and also working with the teams that gave me a lot of experience. And, and I guess it went on from there, really, because I started doing my charity work. So I was working on the helpline for a big charity and taking all sorts of calls. And you, you realise just how much it's needed. Um, you know, there's people that they don't know where to turn for help. So, you know, there's only so much we can do on a helpline call. So there were so many little signs that were saying to me that this was the right thing to do. So I retrained. Do you know, I feel like the when people think of anxiety, it's a, you know, like if, say a few years ago, people go in, um, oh, I'm depressed, you know, and it was almost like a, a trendy phrase. And you work with a lot of youth, okay, so, but, but it was almost like that trendy phrase, I'm depressed. And then it's like, now it's like, oh, it's my anxiety. And it's almost this label, but because of that labeling, I think that people don't really understand what anxiety is or how it can manifest absolutely so true and you do find it's a bit of a badge of honor and and if you think back um to, to explain a bit about anxiety it's evolutionary so you know it's been there since time's begun and the sole purpose of anxiety is to keep us safe and think of it like a smoke alarm in your brain so it's looking for danger all the time and some people's smoke alarm will get triggered if they burnt the toast and others will need a, a fire before it activates. So we've all got it. So, you know, someone that says to you, I haven't got anxiety, they have. They've just labelled it as something different because it comes up in, it might be extreme situations. It might be, you know, that, that time when you step off the pavement into the path of a car and you jump back onto the pavement 
you haven't had to stop and think, shit, I need to get out of the way. It's instinctive. That's your anxiety keeping you safe. So we've all got it. And it's a good thing that we have. And we need to learn to befriend it. It's not something to be fearful of. But where it gets really interesting is we are surrounded with so much information nowadays. We are bombarded with news stories, social media. We've got influencers and celebrities telling us what they think. And we take all of this on board. And we're unable to think for ourselves a lot of the time because we're being influenced by everybody else. And, you know, this is where we're tribal creatures. Again, if you go back to evolution times, if we weren't part of a tribe, we wouldn't have survived because we couldn't go hunting. We couldn't do the cooking. We couldn't keep the fire burning and sleep if we were just ourselves. We, we would die. And that instinct is still within us. So when you get the schools and someone's getting extra help because they've got anxiety or they're allowed longer to sit an exam, everyone wants it. They all want to be treated the same. They all want to be collective and understand how each other's feel because that's how we're being designed. So it is incredibly misunderstood. And a lot of the studies around anxiety have been written by the drug companies. And this is why people are led to believe that it's something that's broken and needs fixing as opposed to something that we've all got and should be embracing. I mean, obviously, you, you described your... Um, you know, your, your corporate background. So banking 30 years in the city. Um, and you know, and I know you, you, you know, you've got a massive number of people in your team and all that kind of stuff. And I think, again, sometimes people will, they'll have the attitude of, I don't have anxiety. If I had anxiety, how, you know, I wouldn't be able to do this job. I wouldn't be able to function in this way, that way, the other way. So how did anxiety show up for you? It was constant. But at the time, you know, I'm not even sure that I'd given it a label, but it was that constant fear of failure. And I kept getting promoted, which is a good thing, but I couldn't understand how or why. But it was because we had the success within the teams and we kept growing and it was finding everybody's strengths, finding the areas that it best for that team as a whole and for the job that we were doing so it was all about playing to everybody else's strengths and it did make us you know everyone wanted to be in my teams and um, which was great for me so I could get the sounds very arrogant I could get the cream you know everyone that was working there I was very lucky like that it, yeah it was it was a great opportunity but I constantly constantly thought I'd be found out you know how on earth as little old me from Essex, but I left school. I went on a train on my the last day of school when I was 16, no qualifications, up to London and had a 30-year career in New York and in Sweden, in Germany, all around Europe. Yeah, it, I kept thinking I'd be found out. And the, the other way it showed up massively is I refused to speak in front of others. So if I was sitting down, in the boardroom, not a problem. I refused to stand up and speak in front of anyone because of a situation that had happened at school when I was 11 and I had my first panic attack. So it was 
something that I was petrified of. And, you know, when you learn to be petrified of something at such a young age, you don't question it again. It's the same with phobias. You don't question where they come from. So you carry on doing the same thing and expecting different results. So that was an area where I should have been stepping up and presenting in front of others more, and I didn't do it. I'd always say to one of my team members, you know, it's a great opportunity to get yourself known by the other senior managers and you go ahead and do it. I'll sit there supporting you. And I I managed to avoid it for all those years. Nice reframe for all those people in your team. (laughs) (laughs) We love a reframe. But it's it's interesting because, of course, you and I met at speaker school. Yeah, absolutely. I I was going to say you're... um, yeah, you're. I mean, you're on a podcast now with me. You're always speaking. You like there's that. That is not there anymore, is it? That's not there anymore. No, it was completely blown away. Really, once and, and it, we've all got the capacity to do this. If we start questioning what our limitations are, it it goes back to um, we've spoken before about the imprinting years, where from naught to seven you start just copying everything and taking all the thought and beliefs and behaviours, values from your parents. And that grows from 7 to 14, where you start modelling everyone. So now you've got modelling all your peers as well. And then you've got the socialisation stage where you're still being told what to do, how to do it. So you don't question. And we just carry on going through life with what we think is the right thing to do. And it was only when I was trying to grow my business, it became apparent that that's the easiest way for me to reach more and more people. And I really wanted to take what I do into schools and universities. And if I was going to do that, I had to step up and face up to my own fears, hence joining speaking school. And, you know, the rest is history. Now we speak on our own stages, we run our own events, we speak in front of hundreds of people. So yes, it's but once you've proved to yourself that you can do it, you can't unprove it. This is that you can't, what's the phrase? You can't unknow the known. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So with your experience, obviously coaching the adults in your team um, and then learning all the NLP stuff, and obviously you've, you've just covered off those sort of three um, progression stages that where we're learning. Why is it particularly young people that you've sort of chosen to do this work with? Where I saw the biggest need in young people, a lot of my clients were coming to me, they were under 25. And they were still, they had their whole life ahead of them. So if I could change their life for the better, that would then impact on their parents and the the remainder of their life, they'll bring their children up differently. So that was definitely the route I was going down. And then, sadly, my daughter's friend took his life when he was 19. Um, and this this happened quite recently. So that was when the big drive, the big push came on to get into more schools, more universities, um, because that was such a waste of a, you know, a future. You know, nobody should be taking their life at any age, let alone at 19. So it it was just such a sad time. And seeing how it impacted on my daughter Madeleine and her peer group, um, it was their best friend's brother. 
Um, yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough. I, I knew the family well. Um, didn't see it coming. Um, that he hadn't talked specifically to me, but um, you know, it was just so sad. And you know, I don't want another person to lose their life if it can be avoided. So in that situation, when you're uh, a bystander, let's say. So whether you're working in an environment where there's young people around you or you're a parent or an auntie or whatever, an uncle, whatever it might might be, what are the – because it's very easy for us to look at someone's behaviour and go, oh, they're a bit anxious today. But what are the real signs of it? Rather than a judgment, like what are the things that people might notice? all different things because there's actually all different types of anxiety so you have generalized anxiety disorder and that will impact on your everyday function so a lot of children are avoiding school at the moment we've got a really big problem in the UK with school refusal and that's leading to more and more frustration and we're seeing more and more child to parent violence so it's now recognised as a type of abuse because the children are so frustrated. They're venting their anger in the family home. They're unable to do it at schools. They refuse to go to schools. So it's being vented at home. So there's lots and lots of different ways. Social exclusion, they'll be staying home more. They'll be staying in their bedrooms. You'll often see them gaming. Um, unfortunately, self-harm is another area that a lot of them go down there's there's a lot of different ways they, they could be um, I mean even as young as five or six if a child is telling you they've got tummy ache it could well be anxiety because you know if you think where you feel anxiety a lot of people feel it in their tummy so a young child doesn't know how to verbalize what they're feeling but it could be that they're worrying about something and what tends to happen happen is the parents keep them home from school and if that's something they're avoiding because there's a friendship conflict or they're struggling to keep up with their peers we've made school even more scary for them by reinforcing that yes yeah, stay home if you're not not feeling great and then it will go away so it's flipping everything on its head and, and asking the right questions you know, what are, what are they fearful of? What are they afraid of? What are they, you know, what happened that day, the day before, if they don't want to go in today, that's made them feel that way? So it's it's just getting to know them, asking them the questions, really, and, and understanding what it is that worries them. And you, you will often find that if the parents are anxious, the children are anxious. So the parents can pro project their anxiety onto the children and like we say because of the imprint years and we're all sponges we learn these behaviors without questioning them we just model and copy and it becomes our identity it becomes our belief of how we are crazy isn't it I mean I like I, I know this stuff you know we've um you know we've sat in rooms being taught this stuff together and it's like every just every time I hear it I you know it makes me think back to things with my own children even um you know my grandchildren you know at two and three years of age there's certain things I've seen them mm. 
seen them do that is it's what they've witnessed and it what they've what they've brought and it is it's just absolutely absolutely crazy and I think we don't realize just how much we are affecting the people around us but even other adults around us don't address this stuff like recognize it in ourselves address it and take action on it absolutely and you know I look back on you know my parenting with Madeleine and there's things I think oh my goodness I wish I'd done that differently because she she was an anxious child as well and she picked that up for me now what was really interesting when I learned to do the public speaking and we were talking about it more she became braver and that's when she did the talk at the Victorian Albert Museum on women's rights and and you know she wouldn't have done that she could see that I was pushing myself and that helps her push herself at the same time when I was limiting myself she was mirroring that too so yeah it's it's we need to be aware of our own behavior our own values our own beliefs and and what we're putting out there to be able to support our children the best we can people are working with you having um you know experienced this stuff and you know we're we're recording this now where are we the beginning of july so exams are just over and obviously that period in itself creates a lot of anxiety in young people um but think about that and and i said i know you do work with adults as well what have been the um the big wins like what what are the because you've been doing this a long time now there's probably just some standout moments where someone had that breakthrough or that realization or You've been working with them and they went and did that thing that they never would have done before starting to work with you. What, just give us There are so many. I mean, one of my very first clients would, had not left the house in three years. And the first meeting that we had, it was, it was actually um, it was a client that I'd worked with and given him some successes and he no longer needed to work with me. And he asked me to work with his father. And um, the first meeting we had was through the window of his lounge um, because he hadn't left the house and he wouldn't let anyone go in. Um, he's now, um, you know, living a full life. He's, he's now, he went back to work. He hadn't been working for, I think it was seven years. Um, he's now back in society and, you know, doing everything that he only dreamt he would be able to do again. And that was because of one... Um, specific incident that had happened in his life so it was about unraveling that and as you know we do timeline therapy and we can regress back into different parts and look at the learnings that we get from that and how we can change the way we associate with a situation that's happened and that helps us have the courage and the confidence so I did I did work with him for um it was probably a year so it was more than I'd normally work with people because they don't normally need that long but but yeah that that's got to be one of the biggest wins um in fact this weekend I've got a client he contacted me in March it's his best friend's wedding this weekend and he was petrified he wouldn't be able to go to the wedding because he's not been able to do any social events so we've been working on the last few months of him increasing a bit more courage and taking on more challenges, getting himself outside of his comfort zone. And I know he's um, he's gone back to his old hometown, so I know he's he's there. 
he sent me a message and it's really cute because they they send me pictures you know to show me what they're doing so you know it's always lovely to to hear that yeah so yeah there's so many there's you know exams people that are really panicked about their exams and we've worked um you know sometimes just building a structure around it so that they know that they've they start believing in themselves and having the confidence that they've got this. And, you know, they're, they're still waiting for results this year. But, um, yeah, they've surpassed all their expectations. But I often get the parents contact me and just say that, you know, I can't believe the change in the children. So they can't necessarily identify it as one particular thing because the child's changed in so many ways. And, and the relationship's improved at home. There's not so many arguments with mum and dad because they've got more confidence and self-belief in themselves I think this is the thing is it the answer is within the person isn't it always your job is to access that so share share with us some of the ways in which you access that with NLP um so neuro-linguistic programming and one of the ways that um, one of the interventions is parts integration, where you've got a conflict within yourself. So, part of you, for example, um, my client that was going to the wedding, part of him really wanted to go and part of him really didn't want to go. So it's understanding how are both those parts, those conflicting areas of his life, impacting and integrating them as one because they're both teaching him something One's teaching him that he's worried that he's going to be judged or and the other one wants to spend time and support his friends. So once we realise it's about judgment, okay, that's fine. You can go to the wedding. You will, There will be your old school friends there and this is how you're going to handle it. So we talk through. But it's when I say this is how you're going to handle it, it's him telling me, not me telling him. It's very, very much the answer has to come from them all the time so it is just drawing that information out and is it questioning them yeah I was gonna say is it always action driven yes it's it's also they can say something to me and I know for well it's complete and utter rubbish Mm -hmm. so it's questioning them so you know I'm always anxious always are you really always anxious um, and then they'll explain to me a little bit about what they've done. So were you anxious then? No, no, that was brilliant. That was amazing. That was so much fun. Okay. So let's start breaking it down slowly. And no, you're not always anxious. And we, the times between the anxiety gets longer and longer as they get more confident in themselves. It still happens and it will always happen. But as long as you've got the coping strategies and we use a lot of breathing techniques, um, I use a technique called unspinning, where you unspin those feelings that I know you've seen me do before. Um, th- there's so many different ways. And some people prefer one way over another way. It's not a one size fits all. So it's getting to what it is that motivates that person. And, and you know, what what is it that they really want to achieve? And you make that powerful enough and they they want to make the changes. It's, you know, the um, the unspinning thing, I know we call it anxiety swirl, don't we? Um, it is, a, I've seen you teach it so many times now. And not only that, I've seen the people that have sat in the audience learning it from you. I've seen what happens afterwards when they've gone back and they've 
whether they've done it with themselves or they've done it with their kids, their loved ones. Yeah. Not suggesting their kids aren't their loved ones, by the way. Um, but you know, colleagues that they've yeah. you know, friends of their kids and stuff like that. And just the feedback is huge. I, I think this is the thing. Sometimes people think therapy. They're thinking about CBT, talking therapy, or coaching. You'll sit in a room having a conversation. And I think it's something that's going to go on for months and months and months and months and months. And it doesn't have to be, does it? No, it doesn't have to be. In fact, when I go into the schools, um, some of the feedback I get from the children is it's really nice I didn't have to talk because they don't have to tell me what's going on in their mind. As long as they know what it is, that's good enough. And I'm just probing them to make sure that they're on the right path, that they can be thinking through the experiences that they've had. Um, so it's it's a it's a really good way for, for children and teenagers because they they don't always know how to verbalize what it is they want to say, but they know how it makes them feel. And we're all about tapping into how it makes you feel. So the words don't matter as much as the feelings. Yeah, no, I love that. So we um obviously we said like we've you know we've we met through the speaker school stuff. Um and do you know what? I'm gonna take this in a different direction actually. So <laughs> oh god. Oh yeah, what's coming? <laughs> so we so right, so this is where it's funny, right? Because we met at speaker school. You were you were uh you'd been at speaker school for ages. Um no, you hadn't been at speaker school for ages because that makes it sound like you never finished. <laughs> the speaker school thing was a three-day course and you'd done it and you were involved in the, the ongoing training development program and so you were you were there assisting at the speaker school. I've been a coach, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and I, I think we had met each other previous to this but we'd not really engaged with each other. So I'm there at this speaker school and... Um, I mean, personally, I think I've always been a freaking delight. <laughs> but at that point, I think other people had um, uh, dressed me up, described me, built this picture of who I was to you. And I'm in there with, like, you know, Christina Big Balls. And um, I remember you correcting me. It was like one of the first sessions and we had to, and also I'm doing a lot of speaking already, but I've, I've never had any speaker training. And you corrected my posture and I'm like, who the fuck is she? <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps, perhaps being a little frosty. And, um, you know, we then, I mean, what, over, I guess, six months from there, we end up, our paths cross another couple of times. We end up on a um, a course together. Yeah. We go from, um, yeah, from that to best mates. And now we're, you know, we're involved in business together and all yeah. that. And it is like, it's, a, it's an absolute whirlwind. So what would be, oh, what would be interesting, but really awkward for me actually thinking about it is you kind of describe your side of that because you mentioned the timeline earlier. When we were on that six-day course, I was taken through a timeline process that dealt with something that links back to my childhood and um, that created a massive shift in me, in my life, in the rest of it. And it's funny because I still, I 
I don't know the diff. I I don't know the difference between who I was before and who I am now. So it's really funny when I hear <laughs> you and some of the other guys talking about that Christina versus this Christina. The old Christina. Now, of course, I didn't know the old Christina that well, and I only know the new Christina. But you had you had a reputation, honey. <laughs> it was scary, Christina. And and to be fair, our first interaction, you lived up to it. <laughs> but we went from from that, and you know, I wasn't offended in any way, as you know. It was no issue for me because you know, there's a lot of people that go through speaker school that are very successful people in their own right, and they don't like being told what to do. So you weren't the first, and and nor the last. So that was no problem for me. But we went from, like you say, that moment to giggling away and spending, you know, I think our record has been a five-hour phone call, isn't it? (laughs) That was probably only a few hours after the last one. (laughs) So, yeah, we've got, I mean, the bond that we've got, I love. I absolutely love. And, And, you know, we do get to spend a lot of time together and hang out a lot together because of the business as well. So, um, yeah. But how can, so I'm asking this knowing a lot of the answer already because of what we, what we do under success psychology, but it's still this, that, that I'm still amazed that how can a process like timeline therapy like parts integration, like the anxiety swirl. It's not so much that it turns the lights on. It's the fact that it makes you realise they were off in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it questions your belief of your understanding around the event. So you can actually change how you relate to it. And it does it by firing off different neural pathways. I mean, I, I love this stuff, as you know. But it's you, you can see the penny drop moment when we're doing some of these interventions on, on different people. You can see where it, it's just all fallen into place and they're not the same afterwards. And, you know, I've seen that in my own practice all the time. And now it's great that we're doing it in front of big audiences so everybody can see the impact that it's having whilst they have their own breakthroughs. Because this thing, like, previous to this, like this, this was all woo-woo shit, you know, and now I'm living and breathing it and can't get enough of it. And in it, it's a, I, I just, it is a feeling. Once you feel it, you feel it. Yeah. You know, up, yeah. up at that point, it's just, um, yeah, I don't know what it is. But your brain is firing off the old neural pathways that are so familiar. So you've fired them off over and over and over and over again when you think back to a past situation. We've just rewired new ones. Mm. But it's just incredible that you can do that. I mean, can... like some of the some of the stuff that I'm seeing at the minute. So um, Dylan Denisha, who's been on the podcast before, and I, I know you know Dylan, and we're looking at doing some other stuff with him as well, which is really cool. Really excited about that. Um, but he's doing a lot in terms of brain mapping and and the real geeky science stuff. Mm-hmm. He's got people wired up to machines and like, you know, what happens when they think about something that they're fearful of? Like what actually happens in their brain? Oh, yeah. Light up and don't. Yeah. 
But I mean, this stuff is crazy, crazy, exciting. Like, so people are terrified about AI, right? We should be more terrified about this thing we're carrying around with us. Yeah. And How the potential that we've got. The control that happens over us. Yeah. We're allowing yeah. it. It's, it's next level. Yeah. And, and you make a good point because of AI, we've, we've got to make sure that we are clear on our thoughts, our beliefs, our values, because if we're not clear on those things, we're functioning like we're AI anyway. Yeah. So, you know, we need to be addressing these things now more than ever. And, and this, isn't, this isn't all new stuff. It's, it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. A lot of what we do is just that now we've got the science to back up and explain it, which is even more fascinating. Do you know, I really like that comparison, actually. Uh, you know, AI and machine learning, essentially, they work on, um, you know, assuming behavior. Yeah. Um, you know, some of it is, well, you know, let's say um, Waze, for example, the um, Google Maps alternative. Yeah. If you drive a certain route, let's say from home to the supermarket, if you always drive a certain route, it's going to pick that up as a preferred route. And if you suddenly want to drive to the next town and you've got to go in that direction, it's going to give you that as part of your route. But if you're always doing things in a certain way, making decisions in a certain way, your brain is going to continue to make those decisions using that. Absolutely. Well, we have what we call habit loops because... We the world is, is is too much for us to take in at any one time. So our conscious mind can only take in between five and nine bits of information. Everything else is stored in our subconscious. So the the power of our brain would be too intense if we had to. <laughs> I've just thought of an example that you're going to relate to so well. So if we see a door in front of us and it's got a handle, do we push it or pull it? Now, if you have to rethink that every time, it's taking brain power. Whereas if we see a handle, we should know to pull it because we pulled handles before. Now, I had a little bit of a, a wobble on that, as you know, <laughs> when we were running our event. And this, this damn door, for some reason, I can't get it right. But <laughs> the, the habit loops are there to protect us. No, you're not going to think about making a cup of tea. It is so instinctive. You reach for the tea bags before you even notice where they are type thing because it's part of a habit loop. Brushing your teeth, you'll brush teeth in the same pattern every day. You'll, you'll literally do it the same every day. And you're not consciously aware of it. It's just a habit loop. So these habit loops run our lives. So we've got a choice. Do we want to keep them running? Or do we want to do a pattern interrupt and change the way they're running? So if you're going to do a pattern interrupt on yourself, right, explain what a pattern interrupt is for people and then tell me, how would you do that to yourself? Because doing a pattern interrupt for someone else is quite, it's not difficult. It, it's changing state. So a pattern interrupt is when you you hijack that thought or that behaviour because you want to change it into something else. So if I was to do it on myself, I mean, if, if we were to do it on each other, then I could just ask you a question, what have you had for breakfast? And all of a sudden you're thinking about a different thought rather than the thought you were just having 
because I've changed your focus elsewhere. If I was to do it on myself, then doing a bit of exercise, a bit of movement, just jumping up and down. I mean, we use the alphabet challenge as well with, with what we do at work. And that's a, that's a fantastic way of pattern interrupting and changing your state. So I have that on my wall at home. So if I think to do it, I will use that. Is that for you? I assumed you'd got Madeleine to do it. Well, Madeleine and her friends used to love doing it when they were younger. So that's why it's still in the other room, because they used to come, they had so much fun. And it always got them into an optimum state. So, you know, you couldn't help but have a great time when you're all giggling and laughing and enjoying each other's company. So, yeah, it's changed their state completely. So it's just changing what you're doing into something else so you can think differently. So just so people know, the alphabet game, that's something we teach um, at Emotional Change Therapy, which is a a five-day course that we offer under Success Psychology. And it is a um, letters of the alphabet, but under each one, it's like, you know, you're going left or right and it's an arm or a leg or whatever that you've got to raise. And you you go through it and backwards and through it and backwards in different ways. and, And it is just... A lot of adults really struggle with it, really, really struggle with it. But it is, it's a brilliant, brilliant thing, absolutely brilliant thing. Um, so if you want to know about it, you need to reach out either to Jen or to me and we'll we'll get you involved with the, the emotional change therapy stuff we're doing so you can access that. Absolutely. And, I mean, how lucky are we? I feel so privileged to be able to watch a, a room full of adults. I know. <laughs> I mean it is like 30 adults in a room trying to jump and raise their left arm at the right time and getting frustrated because they can't it is a um, yeah there's a lot of joy again it's a fantastic way of changing your state Um, you know if I'm feeling that I'm not as motivated I've got a deadline or something that I need to do sometimes just doing that gets you in a flow state and it's all about getting you in a flow state so you're optimised. And then you can sit down and you're, you're more creative, you're more focused, you're able to achieve what it is you need to do. Yeah. Unless you're me, who's incredibly got no, um, I can't even think what the word is, coordination, then you, you've got no chance because you're just full of frustration at that point. Um, you still change your state, though, even if you don't get completely into the flow. It still has the benefits. Yeah, so it's, it does, it's, it, it even if you haven't got coordination, it might take a little bit longer. But we all get there. I mean, I do. Th- I do things like I said. The, the alphabet game is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, but I do things as well, like just putting music on and or changing the music that I'm listening to a different style of music, dancing it out. You know, dancing out. it out is always a good one. You know, party for one here. You know, it's like you know, have, have a little ten minute boogie. And it's yeah. amazing the difference it makes. I do. Yeah. I'm like, right, I'm just going to go for a walk. 30 minutes. Yes. Being out in nature. But, you know, even putting, we've got our own soundtrack that we play yeah. uh, when we do our ECT events. And just putting that soundtrack back on, you can't help but be transported back to that amazing environment. You know, every time you hear those songs. So, you know, again, another another state change. So. Find that song for you and listen to it. And it's actually a really important thing because listen to the words of that song because sometimes we listen to things and we sing along 
but we're not consciously aware of what's being said. And there's a lot of songs with really negative words in them. So just be aware of what you're putting into your brain and make sure that the songs that you're listening to are serving you. It's like listening to the news, isn't it? If we listen to negativity, we take it on board. So whilst I don't watch the news at all, um, I really am conscious of what music I listen to as well. Unless, of course, my daughter's at home and then I don't get much choice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am quite, um, I'm conscious about what I listen to where for that very reason. So I have, as you know, I have my specific playlist, Feeling Awesome, it's called. And the there are songs on that playlist that all have, they trigger different thoughts, emotions, the, the lyrics in them are um, meaningful, representative of something. And like in the evening, I listen to that playlist, I don't listen to anything else. If I'm out in the car and yeah, yeah, I'll put, you know, I might put whatever on and, you know, I use iTunes. So it's like Christina's station and it will suggest whatever. Um, and it's, you know, I'm like, okay, no, don't like this, skip, skip, skip. But in the evening, because I'm in that wind down mode, I am really conscious of what I'm, what's coming in. Because in a minute, I'm going to get into bed. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and again, you know, I mean, I'm the last person to talk about sleep. But at some point, I will get a speech specialist on this podcast. Um, my, my sleep patterns are horrendous. Um, although, touch wood, I'm doing quite well at the minute. Um, but it is, it's like everything you do before going to sleep affects the quality of that sleep, affects how you sleep, if you sleep. Um, and, you know, and I do things like, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I always have two hours between eating and bed. I, you know, even the drinks that I'm consuming in that time, it, it, I'm trying to be mindful of. Um, like I said, but what am I listening to? What am I reading? If I am going to do some work in that time, what is it I'm working on? If I yeah. am going to have a laptop open, if I am going to be using my phone. I, I say I try not to, but you'd know that was a lie because most of the time I, I know. Said, oh, I know. Would you? <laughs> exactly. But it, but it is like what am I going to that window of time? How am I going to spend it so that I can put myself in a peak state? Yeah. Sleep and rest. And another really good way of doing it is practicing a bit of gratitude before you go to sleep. So ask yourself, what three things am I really grateful for today? And they could be really simple things, but it just helps you recall the high moments of the day and you go to sleep with a more peaceful mind do you know one of the things I do every day I never used to do this I've only done it in the last since um since October last year and you'll know why that's significant um I make my bed every morning the reason being there is nothing better than getting into a bed that's been made and it's like just that in it, you know, you know, like when you you arrive at a hotel and you've got a nice, like perfectly made bed with nice, clean, crisp sheets. It's like, it's, isn't it such a fantastic feeling to get into that bed? And so but also every time you walk into the room, it's a nice feeling to see the bed made rather than yeah. the chaos. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's really important to, to make but a bed. And, and I confess, I didn't used to do it until... I've done it for a couple of years, a few years, but yeah, it's not something that I've always done. 
But it is that even if you've had a bad day, you get to get into the bed that's been made. Yeah. And it's like it's worked yeah. for you. And you know, and I think this in itself, it's like what what things can we do? What tiny little things, even if it's just making your bed every morning, what is it you can do to reinforce the positive feelings to fire those neural yeah. pathways? Because there's there's actually a lot that can be done. Yeah. It doesn't cost a lot of money, isn't a lot of hassle doesn't you know it's I mean yeah okay it's habit forming of course but if we consider them as rituals rather than habits it's much easier to to implement and you know I love my morning routine and I do a lot of journaling in the morning and you know most mornings and it is about asking those questions and the first question you know we've discussed it before I've got a list of questions that and I'm happy to share with people, but how am I feeling? And really stop and think about it. And we'll notice that our vocabulary of feelings could be enhanced in most cases. Oh, my goodness. I don't think I've ever said this to you. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had, um, I went through CBT therapy and I've done that a few times. In, in my life for, for varying reasons and um my issue with it always was I just didn't have the words to label my emotions yes it was like it, it, it takes time it, it, I work with an emotion wheel and it helps us identify so if, if this is how we're feeling what are the two emotions either side of that so then perhaps we're feeling one of those instead of what we've originally put down. So it's about expanding your vocabulary. But the next question I ask myself is, how would I want to feel instead? And sometimes I'm top and I'm loving the way I'm feeling and, and all is good, so I don't necessarily need to write anything more. Other days I might I want to feel more motivated. Okay, so what do I need to do to feel more motivated? Do I want to model someone that I know of? Do I want to change my state? How do I want to do it? Do I want to change my environment? Do I want to go and work in a coffee shop? Maybe that would help me be more motivated than to sit at my office where I spend a lot of the time going outside, sitting in a park, you know, and just working yourself through a few of those questions. It's all about getting yourself in a better state where you're more optimized for that day. And without a doubt, without fail, the days that I do my journaling are more productive than any other days. Yeah. I mean, I know we don't do it when we do our events, but we're time is very short because we're up early, we're getting to bed late, and there's just not the time. And we're in an environment that it's all about feelings and emotions and yeah. getting ourselves in a positive state. But, um, yeah, a lot of the time I, I do like to do that. Amazing. Jen, I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, tell people where they can reach out to you. Because, Absolutely. Because, right, I've got to tell everyone, Jen, we were, we were on a call the other night and I've been pushing Jen to be more active on social media and do all this stuff. And we're in a group together. And she sent me this screenshot where she's now a top <laughs> contributor. She's like, oh, my God, how did that <laughs> So, yeah. Come on, Jen, tell people how to reach out to you. Where's the best place? Somewhere you'll actually be able to find it and respond to. 
um, Facebook and LinkedIn, Jennifer Roblin, Anxiety Specialist. So you find me um, on Facebook and LinkedIn. And, you know, if you want to get in touch with me via my website, that is betteryourlife.co.uk. Amazing. Jen, thank you so much for um, for the podcast today. You know I love you. I'd I say I'd appreciate you, but you know I love you. Love you back. <laughs>